Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, a warning from Canada's top doctor that full vaccination does not equal full protection from COVID-19. It's not absolute, right? So, so there's reduction in your risk of transmission, uh, but it doesn't necessarily eliminate uh, your risk of transmission. The Prime Minister pushes back after an attack ad is released by the Ontario government. I recognize that the pressures that are on all Ontarians uh, and that leaders are under a, a certain amount of stress right now, and some will choose to point fingers uh, and lay blame and even uh, engage in personal attacks. Uh, that's not my approach, and that's not, quite frankly, what Ontarians need. And many more questions are expected over the intentions of Bill C-10. Bill C-10 is about ensuring that some of the wealthiest companies in the world, like, like YouTube and, and Netflix and Disney, pay their fair share when it comes to con- investing in our culture, investing in Canadian artists and, and, and musicians. It has nothing to do with, with content. It's Monday, May the 10th. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. I'm joined by Peter Van Dusen, CPAC's executive producer and the host of Primetime Politics. Peter, thank you for being with us today. Hi, hi Mark. Good to talk to you again. So let's start, as we always do, with where we stand on vaccines and the fight against the coronavirus, the spread of the virus. Um, Of course, in Ontario and in other parts of the country, they've been trying to beat back the rising numbers, and there have been further restrictions that have been put in place in the last few weeks, and people are waiting to see the numbers come down more substantially. Uh, We've also heard from Theresa Tam the chief public health officer, that even after people have been vaccinated with two doses of the vaccines that require two doses, they may not be fully immune. And then there's this ongoing kind of tension between Doug Ford, the premier of Ontario, and Prime Minister Justin Trudeau over some of the measures that are being talked about and who's responsible for what. So where do we stand as we start another week? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Eh? We're, we're covering some of the same ground that we've we've covered before in our conversations. It's, you know, you think you're making a whole lot of progress on, on the vaccine front, and there's no doubt that we are. And yet, um, some of the same things keep happening. Some of the same warnings about vaccination, some of the lack of clarity around, you know, which, which vaccine is better, uh, some of the political infighting, the inability of some provinces to get control of cases, which has happened to them before. Uh, and so it, it all sort of brings you to that intersection of, you know, please, please, you know, get us more vaccine and, and get as many Canadians vaccinated as possible, notwithstanding the concerns of Dr. Tan that that doesn't make you 100% safe. But we are seeing, you know, we're in that period, you and I have talked, you know, about it before, Mark, we're in this, this will be the most, you know, the next, you know, five, six weeks and beyond that will be the uh, sort of the longest sustained period of big big increases in vaccine doses with more than, you know, 2 million a week uh, for the foreseeable future. So, you know, I think Canadians are expecting to see big change and, you know, um, you know, at some point we'll pivot to the discussion about, okay, big change brings uh, what, what kind of easing of restrictions and that'll be the next big conversation, but we're still seeing that political uh, infighting and part of that. and, And as we've seen, every time the cases ramp up in the provinces, 
the the discourse becomes uh, you know a little coarser between uh, the affected provinces and the government uh, because there's lots of pressure on you know people want to know uh, how the heck this could happen they want to point fingers of blame they want to know who's responsible for what and so you see a lot of finger pointing uh, unfortunately and we've seen a fair bit of that at times when the cases get bad and 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 spike in provinces that have been affected all right, let's turn to the wage subsidy that was provided to Canadian companies as a response to the the pandemic. And I think the government has acknowledged many times already that this was a blunt instrument, uh, that it, it was meant to be put in place very quickly to have the greatest impact on the economy, to save as many businesses as possible. But over the weekend, the Globe and Mail reported that there were a number of businesses, obviously, that have benefited from this, even though perhaps they didn't need it, that that there were companies that basically uh, have increased their bottom line, their profits because of the wage subsidy, and they would not have gone under if uh, the wage subsidy had not been provided. So uh, how does that change the discussion around some of the programs that have been put in place, particularly that one? Yeah, I think as the, you know, as we, we get... Um, you know, as we sort of push through towards hopefully the end of the pandemic, uh, you'll see more and more stories like this and more and more questions about exactly uh, how these programs worked. Um, you know, and I, I think what it's going to force the government to do is refine uh, their argument uh, around the need for urgency versus the need for uh, perhaps a more, you know, a more uh, robust due diligence. You know, the thing I'd say is when you look at these programs, um, we're going to hear more about you know, these other programs, I just touched on that, and there's going to be lots of questions about who got money, why they got the money, and what protections were in place to to make sure that people who really didn't need the money shouldn't have uh, received the money. But as you framed it, Mark, that's not what the government set out to do. The government, you know, created a program, and it's the same with most of their programs, that, that really didn't have any sort of hard-line parameters. It was it was really about shoveling money out the door and, and hoping it went to people uh, that really needed it that would, uh, that would otherwise uh, perhaps not survive, uh, especially the, the initial months of the pandemic. And they made that clear to Canadians. But as some of these critical stories continue to emerge about how these programs were shaped and why they were shaped the way we were, uh, the way they were, uh, there'll be lots of questions uh, uh, comparing them to other programs. And that's one of the keys is, did Canada have to do it this way? And if you look at the U.S. program, many of the other uh, programs that provided you know, similar packages of wage subsidies for employers uh, had far greater uh, numbers of restrictions on them, effectively had means tests for who could receive the money and what that money could be used for, a far more substantial uh, checks and balances than the Canadian program did. So the government's going to be working on uh, facing questions about this, and I suspect we'll see questions this week about it, and uh, it'll have to refine that narrative that, uh, look, uh, yeah, not everybody needed it as badly as we thought they needed it, but look at all the companies who did. That'll be the, the flip side of the government narrative. They'll point to all the companies who survived the pandemic thanks to these kinds of programs, uh, and we'll see which if, if that defense is enough to stand up over time that uh, this was the right way to do it, notwithstanding some of the flaws in the program. Yeah, and I suppose the other argument that could be made is that uh, beyond specifically helping certain companies that would otherwise have suffered, 
and and maybe gone under uh, that that there was an intent to shore up the economy and to and to sustain confidence in the economy and that that required more of a blunt instrument, right? Yeah, if you remember the the very earliest days uh, of the of the pandemic, the government narrative was was very very clear. It, it you know people wondered you know why you know in terms of the wage subsidy program, in terms of the CERB, what we're just going to send money. The government you know always said this was never going to be a means tested for this is this this approach was to try and come through the pandemic where we were when the pandemic hit to try and keep everybody whole uh to try and uh, make sure that you know uh, companies and individuals didn't lose a, a whole pile of ground economically and and financially that they that was shifting beneath their feet because they couldn't control a pandemic no one saw it coming uh, and so the government always made it clear that yeah, there's going to be some problems that we're not really, you know, testing, uh, you know, the due diligence argument here. What we're doing is getting the money out quickly to people to, in an effort to keep them whole, uh, try to keep them where they were when the pandemic hit. Now, you know, what's necessarily going to be the case? We're seeing it now is that some people, because of that approach to cover everybody. We are going to find that uh, a lot of people along the way that really didn't need the money got the money anyway. Um, but as I say, the government's approach was always about trying to keep people uh, where they were and not have them lose any ground, uh, you know, be in the same spot they were at least when yeah. the pandemic's over to where they were when it started. All right. I expect there will be more talk this week about Bill C-10. There have been a lot of questions about how far it will go and whether it will infringe upon freedom of speech. This is the government's bill that would subject uh, some online platforms, uh, perhaps YouTube and others, uh, to federal regulations. And uh, the minister, the Heritage Minister Stephen Gilboa, uh, said recently that uh, if an account has a large enough following, the CRTC, the, the Canadian Radio, Television and Telecommunications Commission, could be involved in this. So uh, where do you see this going? Yeah, I see lots more questions about it. And it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a bit of a tricky one for a lot of Canadians, I think, because, you know, there are, there are large numbers of Canadians very active in, in social media and, and at posting videos and uh, the regulation piece is really important to them. And on the other side, there are lots of Canadians clamoring for, uh, you know, uh, foreign-owned uh, digital platforms to pay their fair share uh, when compared to what other broadcasters have to pay to, you know, create Canadian content and direct Canadians to, to Canadian content. But there's still lots of questions left open on, on this one. And, you know, and then look at what's changed over the last uh, three or four days when the government promised an amendment that would absolutely guarantee that people who, you know, uh, upload videos and uh, do that kind of thing. This was aimed at companies, not individuals. But then when the uh, when the heritage minister said, well, if you're really successful at it, you might yeah, end up being regulated by by this, the CRTC. So there's lots of room for continued scrutiny here and for people to try and get the right answers. The, the latest message seems to be we won't interfere with anybody that's, uh, you know, postings, you know, videos and so on, on on the Internet for personal use. Just don't get good at it, because if you get good at it, then you will be regulated and you will be 
mm. perhaps subject to the oversight of the CRTC. So uh, we're going to hear lots more debate about this. Uh, there's lots of push from uh, parliamentarians to you know uh, make sure these these measures are uh, charter tested. What are the built-in guarantees that would have to be in this law to ensure that the kinds of things that critics are concerned about don't come to pass, uh, that individuals don't get regulated. So still lots of discussion to have on this bill. All right, we'll see where the discussion goes on all these topics over the next week. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Always good to talk to you, Mark. Take care. That's CPAC's Peter Van Dusen. I think the source of information is important. Um, I think we need to uh, really tune in to our public health officials. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the National Post, Vivek Gohl, Peter Lowen, and Janice Gross-Stein argue that muddled pandemic communications are leaving Canadians bewildered. They write, One of the biggest challenges we've faced throughout this pandemic is that so many voices are involved in the official response. Politicians give regular press conferences. Public health officials do the same. Advisory committees speak up and challenge not only governments, but other experts. Researchers, clinicians, and journalists all have something to say. In order to get through this third wave, and stave off a potential fourth wave in the fall, this needs to change. In an editorial, the Toronto Sun considers the economic toll of lockdowns. The Sun writes, The loss of over 200,000 jobs in the month of April is bad news at a time when we should be bouncing back from the economic hardships of the last year. There's no hiding the fact that these losses were mostly caused by pandemic restrictions. But the stories of how lockdowns have been crushing to individuals and businesses, small and large, run the risk of being treated like old news. It's a story that's been told for months, but it's reality, and it keeps happening. In the Toronto Star, Chantal Hébert considers the need for a majority government. Hébert writes, Notwithstanding the pandemic and the partisan sound and fury of question period, Canada's minority parliament is turning out to be at least as productive as its predecessors. One could argue that an election would actually set back the government's agenda. If the past is any indication, the quest for a governing majority has a lot more to do with the convenience of the ruling party than with a burning need to deliver better governance. Now, here's what's coming up on Canada's political agenda. The Prime Minister will take part in a virtual discussion with nurses and nursing students from across Manitoba before making a virtual visit to a pop-up vaccination clinic site at the Brampton Islamic Centre. He will also chair the Cabinet meeting. Deputy Prime Minister Christia Freeland will virtually attend question period and the Cabinet meeting. Veterans Affairs Minister Lawrence McCauley will make an announcement about transportation and social infrastructure for the Abigwite First Nation on Prince Edward Island. Infrastructure Minister Catherine McKenna will make an announcement in Ottawa. And Immigration Minister Marco Mendocino will hold an event to discuss the recently launched pathway for French-speaking temporary residents intending to live outside of Quebec. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Monday, May the 10th. Tune into Primetime Politics tonight on CPAC for coverage of all the day's events. Our podcast returns tomorrow morning. Have a great day.